I heard a quote this week that said that as Christians, what we are is just one beggar leading other beggars to where they can find bread. And I, I like that quote because we are all beggars, we are all broken. As you begin to hear the stories of different people, like Derek's story, uh, this week on Tuesday at the Seniors, we heard Bernie Zinnerman's story. Uh, Val just whispered something to me, too, while you guys were singing. And we just realized we're all broken people. And that's why we come together, is because we are beggars, but we've figured out where to find the bread. And now we're simply trying to tell other people where to find the bread also. Uh, many of us have probably heard of the Rorschach test. It's a test that is to help people discover that they are broken people. Some people need a little bit of extra help in recognizing that they have some things wrong with them. Uh, how it works is you are given a series of ink blots to look at, like the one you see on the screen, and you are to stare at the ink block, and then tell the therapist what you see. So why don't we just give this a try right now. Turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think you see in the ink blocks on the screen there. It'd be very interesting to hear all the different answers that are being given right now. It's like looking at cloud formations, almost. Well, supposedly, your answers give clues into your subconscious mind and the state of your emotional and psychological health. And so, for research purposes, I decided this week to take an online Rorschach test. I wanted to find out how healthy or unhealthy I was. Now, I have no idea to the legitimacy of the website I went to. I just simply typed this into Google, and the very first website that came up, I went to. So, when I was given the 10 images, and I looked at each image, I tried to see something in the image, and then put a score down, I completed it, and I hit enter, and this was the result it gave me. It said, your score is three out of 10. Meaning, you selected three answers that are commonly given by individuals with some psychological disturbance. I wasn't sure what to do with that information. To show how I compared to others who took the same test, then it, it gave this graph after and showed how everybody that takes this test and how they scored. Getting a 3 out of 10 put me somewhat in the middle of the population. I was a little bit at the 50% mark, a little bit over the 50% mark, meaning that I'm a little bit more psychologically disturbed than the average person. This past week, a couple was astonished when they viewed their ultrasound. Now, many of us, when we have an ultrasound to see the baby that is going to be born to us, we find this to be a moving experience. But this couple this week had an extraordinary experience. It was extra special because when they stared closely at their ultrasound, they saw Jesus there in the womb with their baby. There he is. They were convinced. That Jesus was there, an obvious sign that Jesus 
was looking after their baby. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Because the truth is, is Jesus appears everywhere. People have been seeing Jesus in all kinds of objects. There are the people that saw Jesus in the middle of this orange after they sliced it open. I'm not sure if you see Jesus there. If not, bump your neighbor and you can explain to them where Jesus is. And since Jesus is the bread of life, it's obviously appropriate for him to appear in someone's toast when they wake up in the morning. Somebody was eating a bag of Cheetos and they even found Jesus as a Cheeto. And they had to take a picture of that and post that online also. I just read a book on the number of different Jesuses people in North America follow. Particularly in the last 200 years. Now, the way this book was lined up is they had different chapters on each of the Jesuses that people followed. There was the manly Jesus. There was the feminist Jesus, the black Jesus, the celebrity Jesus, the philosopher Jesus, the liberationist Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, the Eastern guru Jesus. And every one of these chapters went on to explain different movements of people that follow one of these Jesuses. It would have been interesting they didn't have one, but if they would have had a chapter on the Baptist Jesus to see some of the ways that we maybe see Jesus. But the question we have to ask is, how many Jesuses are there? How come there are so many different versions of who Jesus is? Now, some of this has to do with how little people know about Jesus. Some of it has to do with the fact that some of our ideas of Jesus have been things that we've just picked up piecemeal. We got a little bit from our parents, a little bit from our grandparents, a little bit from Sunday school, a little from a couple of Bible verses we remembered, and then something from a TV documentary we watched. And we've kind of put it all together like different colors of Play-Doh, and we've made our own Jesus. That Jesus is nothing more than a scattered ink blot that we look at and... We end up interpreting and finding a Jesus that looks a lot like looking in the mirror. We find a Jesus that looks a lot like ourselves. But there's another reason why we see so many different Jesuses. And that other reason has to do with Jesus himself, the real Jesus. And that is that Jesus produces a number of different responses in us when we encounter him. When we come face to face with the real Jesus, we find ourselves having our hearts revealed. So in that sense, Jesus kind of is like a Rorschach test. The only difference is, is that it's not scattered randomness, but it's looking into the truth. And when we come face to face with the truth, our hearts are exposed when the truth begins to unpeel the layers. In the passage today in John chapter 7, we've been working through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 7. In the verses we're going to look at today, we're going to see seven different responses that people give to Jesus. They're all encountering the same Jesus. They're all meeting the same guy. But seven 
very different responses are given to this Jesus. It starts in verse 1, and we read, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. And after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. We'll stop there and look at the first response people gave to Jesus. And that is that there were those who wanted to exploit Jesus. This is not new. We've already seen this before. We see this with the crowd that Jesus fed, the 5,000, and how they wanted to make him their king afterwards. Jesus' brothers are like that crowd. Jesus, what are you doing here hiding in obscurity? If you want to be famous, why don't you go to the festival? This was one of the three festivals in Jerusalem that Jews were required to go to if they were in anywhere close by Jerusalem. This would have been a time where lots of people were packed into Jerusalem. Why don't you go to the festival and show yourself there? That's how you're going to make a name for yourself. None of this private miracle stuff. Do something really big, Jesus. Get up on stage. Start your own YouTube channel. Build a mega ministry. You can't become famous. Hiding like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Ever notice... In scripture, what miracles usually lead to. Quite often, they lead to a request for more miracles. Be wary of someone that ever says to you, if Jesus would just prove himself to me with a miracle, then I would believe. Because we see time and time again, Old Testament, New Testament, that so often what happens, Jesus feeds the 5,000, does a miracle, what do they what kind of result does this produce? Give us another miracle. Jesus' brothers have obviously seen Jesus doing miracles. What has it produced? Give us another miracle. Miracles often lead to requests for more miracles, not necessarily to a relationship with Jesus Christ. After Jesus' brothers have seen and heard all of the miracles that he's done, they say to Jesus, if you can do such wonderful things, why don't you do them in Jerusalem? If, hasn't Jesus done enough to prove himself? The if from his own brothers sounds eerily similar to the kind of if 
that Satan gave Jesus in the desert. If you really are the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you really are the son of God, why don't you jump off of this building? If you can do such wonderful things, Jesus' brothers say, why don't you do them in Jerusalem? The if of Jesus' brothers is like the crowd wanting to make Jesus their king, but make them king on their own terms. If you can do these things, why be so secretive? You can't be famous like this. On the exploitation of Jesus, of using his miracles for our own sake, Oscar Wilde has a very thoughtful story. In the story, a stranger comes on a house of marble, and it's, it's lit by torches of cedar. It's held up by golden pillars, and he enters the house and sees a rich man lying on a couch of purple and red, surrounded with servants, people waving palm branches to calm him and to be air conditioning for him. He's got roses around his head like a crown. He's sitting with the most exotic and expensive wine before him. And the stranger enters the person's house and, and comes before him who's lying on all of these exquisite things that have been laid out for him. And the stranger says, why do you live like this? The rich man looks up and recognizes the stranger and says, but I was once a leper. And you healed me. How else should I live? As Oscar Wilde continues to tell the story, the stranger then leaves the house. And as he leaves the house and starts walking down the street, he notices a woman. Scantily dressed, walking seductively. And he sees on the other side of the street a man staring, looking at her lustfully beginning to put his hand into his pocket and look at how much money he has, seeing if maybe he could purchase her for a time. He walks up to the woman who's staring, or walks up to the man who's staring at this woman and says to the man, why are you looking at her like that? The man turns around to the stranger and recognizes the stranger and says, but I was once blind. Didn't you heal me and give me my sight? How else? And to what else should I look at? And then he runs over to the woman and says, Why do you dress like this? Why do you walk this way? And she looks and notices the stranger as well and says, But aren't you the one that healed me? How else should I walk? Oscar Wilde leaves the story there, and I think it's self-evident what he's saying. How often the very things we ask Jesus for are the things we cannot handle and the things that destroy us. And yet the crowds keep coming to Jesus. Give us another miracle. Give us another miracle. 
do this for us, do that for us, make us your king. They're trying to exploit Jesus. And yet Jesus will not be bought. Jesus will not be used. And so often he will not be used because of his love and his care for us. And so Jesus sends his brothers on without him. And Jesus stays, or, uh, and Jesus stays behind. Jesus stays incognito. There's another reason why Jesus is staying behind and not going. And that's also because of another response that people are giving to Jesus. And that is that there are those who want Jesus dead. Some want to exploit Jesus, and there are other people that want to kill Jesus. That's another reason why Jesus stays secret. A lot of people, when they read through the Gospel of Mark, they ask why Jesus so often says, don't say, don't tell, don't talk, and he seems to stay so stealth. Why? It's because of these kinds of things. Jesus knows the wrong way the crowd wants to use him on the one hand, and the other hand, he knows that the crowd wants to kill him. And it yet is not yet his time. Jesus wanted to stay out of Judah where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. Really, it's a warning to all of us in leadership, particularly in church leadership. Whenever I read the Gospels, it scares me. Because I see how often it is the leaders, the religious leaders, that are the greatest antagonists to Jesus. Sadly, church history is full of corrupt priests and pastors and presbyters and elders and deacons and bishops and apostles and whatever else you want to call them. It is full of people in high leadership positions that really end up being against Jesus. See, being in charge can easily go to the head. And then when you add to it, being in charge, supposedly, of God's agenda, well, it's just a little bit too much for people to handle. We write God's agenda, and then we expect God to work according to our systemized theology and to our policies and procedures. And we get really upset when God doesn't follow our rules. When God doesn't go and do things the way that we have it planned out for him, we then want to stamp him out. It was the church leaders who stood against the Reformation. It was church leaders who were some of the strongest opponents to the Wesleyan revivals. It was church leaders who stood against the abolition of slavery. It was church leaders who stood against school integration. It's why I'm always quite cautious when new movements in the church start up. There are some that are very quick to, oh, this movement, that movement, evil, bad, this. I'm always very cautious. To allow these things time, to allow these things to sort themselves out. Because they may just be fresh winds of God's spirit. And we should be very careful to squelch it. I've read too much church history to see the church leaders always squelching the new things God's doing. 
For Jesus' own day, there were people who sat around their religious boardrooms that were quick to kill Jesus. Because when they looked at Jesus, he didn't fit what their expectations of the ink block should be. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were wanting. And he was upsetting the system. And so they wanted him dead. There's a third group as we read on. A group who responded to Jesus by simply being grumblers. Verse 12 says there was a lot of grumbling about, uh, about Jesus among the crowds. Some wanted to exploit Jesus, use them for their own selfish gains. Some wanted Jesus dead. And then it says there was a lot of grumbling about Jesus among the crowds. You know, one of the greatest killers of a spiritual life is grumbling. It's something we all, myself included, need to battle against all the time. Grumbling is directly opposed to joy and thankfulness. Two of the keys to growth in our spiritual walk with Christ. Gratitude and joy. Grumbling is the very thing that opposes that. It is impossible to see what God is doing and grumble at the same time. It was the sin of Israel when they left Egypt. After God did, again, amazing miracles. Squelching Pharaoh, parting the Red Sea. Coming in through the desert on their way to the promised land. What do we hear? is we read of the Israelites grumbling and complaining and grumbling and complaining, and the very nature of grumbling did not allow them to see the things God was doing. It resulted in a journey that should have only taken maybe a year to get to the promised land. It took them 40 years. And the generation of grumblers never made it into the promised land at all. God said, that generation is never going to see the promised land. Grumbling is inward focused. It's the kind of thing that gets people stuck in their spiritual lives. It's the kind of thing that gets churches stuck in their growth. The more we grumble, the more inward we are focused. Whereas joy and thankfulness are outwardly focused. When we are joyful, when we are thankful, then we are seeing the things that God is doing out there in people's lives. And we embrace the diversity of what God is doing. And we're thankful, we're celebratory about it. The more joy we have, the bigger God continues to seem. I think of Lucy who, after not seeing the lion Aslan for a long period of time, finally sees Aslan come to her again. And when Aslan comes close, she says, Oh, Aslan, Aslan, you've grown. And Aslan says to Lucy, and Aslan in the story is the Christ figure. He, he says to Lucy, it's not that I've grown, but that you've grown. And that every year you grow older in me, I appear bigger to you. God can't get any bigger than he already is. 
But the more our life is filled with the joy and the abundance and the thankfulness of what God is doing, the bigger he seems all the time. And yet there were many in the crowd that simply grumbled. And when they grumbled, they couldn't see the work of God standing in front of their face. God was working with Jesus, and he was right there in front of them. And they couldn't see it. Because they were absorbed in their grumbling. Well, we also read about another group of people. Some argued, verse 12 says, he's a good man. There were those who thought Jesus was a a good man. This is a, a fairly common assessment of Jesus, even in our day. You ask a lot of people what they think of Jesus. Whether or not they have a right understanding of Jesus kind of doesn't matter. Most people, first reaction will be, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. He fed people, he healed people, he, he stood up for the marginalized, he stood up against injustice. Jesus even provided the best wine at a wedding. I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. I don't care what belief system you hold to, who would deny that Gandhi was a good guy? Or Mother Teresa, she's a good woman. There were those in the crowd that just simply recognized that Jesus really was a good person. But there were those also who thought Jesus was a fraud. Interesting that you could have such different opinions in the same crowd. Uh, Verse 12 also has people say he is nothing but a fraud who deceives people. Some grumbled. Some said he's a good guy. Others said he's he's nothing but a fraud who deceives people. You know, there are people who do believe even individuals like Gandhi and Mother Teresa really were just frauds. I mean, maybe Mother Teresa and Gandhi were actually just padding their pockets full of money. They were exploiting it from the people that they were working with. They had a double life. They're just fakes. Conspiracy theories abound. We never really landed on the moon. And 9-11 was an inside job. Emperor Constantine decided which books to include in the New Testament. And Elvis is still alive. There are people out there that believe all those things. Jesus is just a bunch of hocus-pocus. There are even some people, which is just astonishing to me, uh, that that believe that Jesus never even existed as a historical person. He's nothing but a fraud who deceives people. And then there were others who uh, thought that Jesus was unqualified. Continuing on in verses 14 and 15. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Now, this is something we're going to deal with next week because this is kind of weird. Um, What we read in verse 9 is Jesus says that he's not going to go to the festival. And then in verse 10, it says, and after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretively. And you're like, what? 
That's kind of weird. Jesus says, no, I'm not going, and then he does go. And we're going to deal with that next week. But here, Jesus is at the festival, the festival he said he wasn't going to go to. And now he stands up, and in the middle of them, starts talking, began to teach at the temple. And the people were surprised when they heard him. And, says, and they say, how does he know so much when he hasn't even been trained? So there are those that heard Jesus and knew their scripture well, listened to Jesus, and he seemed to make a lot of sense, but they were unable to hear him because he didn't meet their qualifications of being trained. And so they simply wrote him off as unqualified. Even though he taught with an authority that we read other places that no one else ever taught with, these people didn't see Jesus fitting their ink blocks. He didn't have the academic credentials. He didn't go to seminary or he didn't go to the right seminary. He didn't write books. In fact, the only time that Jesus ever wrote is a story where it says that Jesus wrote in the sand and it doesn't even tell us what he wrote. And... That story, we don't even know if it's authentic or not. If you look at that story in chapter 8 of John, which we will deal with in a few weeks, it says that that story is not even in the earliest manuscripts. So, what qualifications does this guy have? What gives him the right to stand up here and to talk to us when he doesn't have the credentials? Who gave Jesus the right to teach about God? To teach about the scripture. And then there was a seventh group that simply thought Jesus had a demon. Verse 20, the crowd replied, you're demon possessed. This isn't the first time that Jesus was accused of having a demon. There was even an occasion, as illogical as the argument is, where people accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil. Which Jesus just countered them with how illogical it would be for Satan to fight against himself. But there were some people that were simply saying, you are full of an evil spirit. And so there we have it. How can there be so many different opinions about the very same man, Jesus? They're all looking at the same person. How can people exploit and grumble about a Jesus who is a good, fake, unqualified man with a demon who should be killed? Are we all talking about the same guy? And then, in the midst of all of this, there is Jesus' own self-assessment. Verse 16, he says, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me, and anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. In other words, Jesus is saying here, anyone who wants to do the will of God, anyone whose heart is in the right place will know who I am. 
The reason we have so many different responses to Jesus is because Jesus isn't seven different things. But there are seven and even more than seven different states of people's hearts. When you encounter me, you will know whether I am from God or am not from God. Because I will reveal the state of your heart. So what are we to make of all this? Well, I see at least three implications. And the first is that we have to get to know the real Jesus. Sometimes the Jesus that people accept or uh, the Jesus that people reject is not the real Jesus. And there's no good accepting a Jesus that you've just made up in your head just because you like that Jesus if he never really lived. You might as well follow Cinderella or some other fairy tale then. And it's too bad for those who rejected Jesus, who equally doesn't exist but is just a Jesus they've made up in their own head. We've got to get to know the real Jesus. The Jesus in people's minds is as close to the real Jesus as Santa Claus is to the real Saint Nicholas. Would you reject Saint Nicholas because you reject Santa Claus? That would be an illogical leap. And so who was Saint Nicholas? Who was Jesus? We need to discover this real Jesus. And the most obvious way to do that is through the four earliest sources that we have about this man's life. Written by people that either knew Jesus personally or they knew people who knew Jesus personally. We have them in our New Testament. That's why the early church put them in the New Testament. These are the best documents that we have from the earliest time within a generation of Jesus' life. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got to get to know the Jesus of the Gospels. And the only way we're going to do that is if we are continually in the Gospels. It's, it's completely ludicrous to reject a Jesus if we haven't even read the four Gospels. I mean, how can you reject somebody you, you haven't even learned anything about him? And as Christians, at the very least, I would say the four Gospels should be part of our yearly reading. We should at least read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every year, over and over, just immersing ourselves in these Gospels so that we begin to get to know the Jesus of the Gospels. But as we do so, what we're going to find is that this Jesus was not just a historical figure but that we will be encountered by this Jesus when we do so. And so we need to be prepared, and I think this is some of the reason why we avoid the Gospels, is that when we meet this Jesus in the Gospel, he reveals our hearts. That's the scary part about reading. Reading the Gospels is not like just reading Tom Sawyer. 
So I guess in some ways I, I would even say I dare you to read the Gospels. Because you'll be encountered by someone who has risen from the dead. And so there's a scary component to reading the Gospels, and that is the fact that you will be faced with the Jesus in the Gospels, and he reveals your heart, as we see him doing in the story today. He will invoke a response within you, anger, hatred, respect, confusion, love, doubt. Your heart will begin to be exposed. And instead of staying there, the next thing you need to do is as you begin encountering Jesus and as you begin having these feelings and these emotions and these thoughts coming out as you're encountering Jesus, you can't just stay there. Now you need to do something with it. And so I'd encourage you to talk to a pastor. I am always open to talk about Jesus. You're reading the Gospels and you've got questions, you've got struggles, you're wondering what's going on. Send me an email, give me a phone call. I love talking about Jesus. We'll sit down, I'll listen, we'll just talk. Or if there are other people that you know, a good, strong Christian friend that you have, begin talking to them about the Jesus that you're encountering. Begin to explore, what is he saying to you? Why are these emotions being welled up inside of you as you encounter him in the Gospels? What's going on? How is God speaking? And thirdly, we also need to expect a variety of different responses from people when we tell them about Jesus. We should not be surprised by the different ways that people respond to Jesus. And at least for me, this has made telling other people about Jesus and witnessing about Jesus all the more easy. Because it's simply my job, like one beggar who's found where the bread is, to point the bread out to other beggars. It's not my job to stuff the food in his mouth. I simply need to tell people about Jesus and expect that there's going to be a variety of responses. And when I take away the pressure of, I have got to invoke this response out of this person. I've got to save this person, or I've got to defend Jesus, or I've got to do this. There's so much anxiety that goes with that that sometimes I can't even open my mouth. But if it's just simply, let's talk about Jesus and let me help you understand who the real Jesus is. And trust that the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts. Some people get mad. Some people fall in love. Some people have all kinds of questions. Let Jesus do the work. And step out of the way. And recognize that the way people respond in the vast array of differences, nothing new. It's not about you. People have always responded to Jesus. Even when he walked this earth. In these many different ways. It's our job simply to tell people about Jesus and let him work on their hearts. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus to us. I thank you also, God, for respecting and allowing us the dignity to respond to Jesus. That you don't force the will of anyone. You love all people and you desire that all should know you. And you give us many chances. You tell us who you are through your son. But it's always an invitation. It's always an invitation to us to say, you can say yes or you can say no. I pray, God, that we will be people who will be in love with Jesus so that we will get to know him and become joyful and thankful people who are filled with your spirit. So that by the way that we live in word and deed, we can share Jesus with the world and allow your Holy Spirit to work on people's hearts just as you continue to work on our hearts. Amen.